Uh, glad to be with you. We missed last Sunday being with you. We were in Washington, D.C. I had the opportunity to speak at the Evangelicals for Life conference on Thursday evening, and then we spent the weekend there. We did the March for Life on Friday. That was pretty fun and enjoyable and um, important. And so we got to do that on Friday and then tour around D.C. Uh, it was the, you know, the one weekend the government closes down. Uh, so we had an appointment to go see the White House, and that got canceled. So, but we made, we made good, uh, good hay of the opportunity that was there before us in D.C. and just had a fantastic time. But the end result was we were not here last Sunday. So we're glad to be back with you. We are looking at, if you're a guest with us, we're looking at single-verse expositions. These are killer verses. And then we're going to move from single verses to kind of big chapters that are, are unique and important. But I think it's important for us to do some single verse exposition for a couple of reasons. One, these are fantastic verses and ones I want you to be fully acquainted with. And whenever you deal with a single verse, the idea would also be maybe to add to that memorization. Um, I know that's an old discipline and we kind of all memorize scripture when we were kids. But I'm here to tell you, you never outgrow your need to do memorization. So you should get yourself some three by five cards, put them in your mirror when you're shaving, laminate them in the shower, use that time wisely, gentlemen and moms as well. Find time to do that, but you never outgrow your need to memorize. So when I'm drawing attention to a single verse, they are important verses. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at them. So that's one element I bring to your attention. The second is, I want to teach you how to dig into a text, like a flower, like a spring tulip, which blossoms. I want you to, to see as you stare at and as you mull over and um, as you loiter in a single verse, it begins to grow and, and God begins to teach you things. And so sometimes uh, some of you need to read three or four chapters a day just because you need a large volume of intake. And some of you are further down the path and maybe just a single verse could really revolutionize your day and you need to sit on that verse and loiter so i wanted to model for you how that as you look at one verse and in the verse before us this morning every single word matters and as the more you stare at it the clearer it gets the deeper you go and so that's kind of what's behind this little mini series we're doing so i'm just kind of picking singular verses that i feel are very important to both your sanctification and your understanding of who god is all right so I've chosen this morning 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I believe it's probably the most profound sentence in the whole Bible. So I'm going to up the ante a little bit and the expectations for us to unpack it this morning. But it's, it, is, it is the most profound sentence in the whole Bible. It's really 15 words of hope. There are more words in your English text, but in the Greek text, where the Bible was originally written in the New Testament... It is only 15 words, uh, so don't go look at how many words are there and say, Dan's wrong. It's the Greek text that I'm referencing there, there, but it's often called 15 words of hope. I find it bringing about wonder, even early this morning, just the wonder of this verse. In, it also brings about kind of a mind-boggling, like, is this really true? I mean, forensic justification, and we'll talk about all that. I mean, is that really true? Uh, it's mind-boggling, and I hope it will produce a new gratitude, massive gratitude, um, because it answers the question, what is the gospel? And if you don't know the gospel, and you hear us use this term all the time, the gospel this, the gospel that, being gospel-centered, being a gospel-focused church, what does that mean? This single verse, this profound single verse, defines what is the gospel and teaches us 
how we can be reconciled to God. So we know from Genesis that we are alienated from God. And we have to reconcile that relationship. We're at odds with God. James even says we're enemies of God. He even goes that far. So we're at odds with God. How do you reconcile back to right relationship with God? This single verse answers that question. So what is the gospel? How do you become reconciled to God? And I'm just going to stay here in this text and look at every single word. And I promise you the richness should flower uh, like a tulip in the spring should flower and you should grow deeper and deeper as we progress through this verse in your appreciation of our common salvation. Let me read what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and then we'll dive in. The text states, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to do it again. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is an amazing, profound, probably the most profound sentence in all of scripture. What was an amazing thing that happened in 1348 for four years, in, beginning in 1348, um, Europe was plagued by what they called the Black Death. Um, it claimed about 60% of Europe, millions and millions of people. On average, about 750 people died a day. So from the time of contracting till death was literally about seven days. And they called it the Black Death. The reason why they called this plague the Black Death is because it would create a black or ashiness to the skin. And so that was the descriptor. It came along the Silk Road, all of Europe's uh, travel routes. That was how it was passed through. And nobody really knew, knew the cause until after it had ended and the scientists got busy trying to figure out what actually took place. Where 60% of Europe actually was killed by the plague. What happened was in their taxonomy was that there was bacilli transported by fleas on rodents. So the bacilli would um, block the, the flea's stomach. The flea would regurgitate on its host and that would then be transported to other people. And so this is what was the cause. Listen, 60%, millions of people died in the Black Death. It was so bad and so devastating to Europe, they called it the, a punishment from God. Literally, that's what they called it, a punishment from God, the Black Death. And it was probably one of the most, the, the worst pandemic situations in, in all of history. 60%, again, 60% of Europe died. That's huge. That's bad. Now, as horrific... As the Black Death is, there is another plague. This plague plagues all of us. It gets 100% of its victims. Not 60%, but 100% of all of its victims. It is indeed 100% fatal. It affects both the physical and the eternal. 
Physical and eternal death in, are in play with this one. It is the plague of sin. It's what we need to deal with. It's what we have. It's what we're born into. Romans 3.10 states, there's none righteous, not a one of us. Then further in Romans 3, which we read, you heard read this morning, Romans 3.23 states this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me illustrate that. So if we were all to go up to Louisville, and we're going to swim across the Ohio River from the Louisville banks to the Ohio uh, to, to Indiana Banks there, um, we would get in the river and we'd all swim. Now, it doesn't matter if I get halfway across and drown, and you get three-quarters of the way across and drown, or someone gets almost to the other side of the bank and drowns, we all drown, right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We have all been plagued with sin, and it's the worst plague of all because it's physical and spiritual. So the text states that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. Now, we're not all as sinful as we can be. You have potential to be a worse sinner than you actually are in practice. But we are by nature born into sin and we are sinners by choice. This goes all the way back to the beginning, right? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they are on top of the world. Um, they are innocent in the garden. Adam throws off his responsibility as husband and leader of that family unit. Eve follows the snake. Adam follows Eve. And no one follows God. The end result, when Adam sinned, and he did so with his eyes wide open, shirking his responsibility... He then catapulted, he catapulted the whole human race into sin so that, Romans 6 states, that we're all born sinners. And we're born alienated from God. We need to be reconciled to God. And because of their sinfulness and their rebellion in the garden, one man created death upon all men, as Romans 5 states. Now, like they did after they sinned, we continue to sneak around the garden, we continue to hide, and we continue to suppress the truth and righteousness. We have to be now reconciled back to God because we're estranged, we're alienated. And Adam catapulted the whole human race into the sin. And so we are alienated from God by nature and by action. So we have a problem. It's a sin problem. It's a plague. It gets 100% of us. We are all in desperate need of reconciliation to God. If you do not get 2 Corinthians 5.21, your soul could be in peril. So it's extremely important. The stakes are high when you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's what is the gospel. And you may be thinking, well, I already know the gospel, Dan. I already know all this stuff. Well, Rehearsing and reviewing and reminding yourself should produce the peaceable fruits of righteousness. It should produce gratitude. It should produce an ambassadorship, which we'll see here in verse 20 as we go a little north of that as we wrap up this morning. So this single verse provides for us 
the cure for the plague of sin that is literally destroying mankind. It is a good news cure. It is fantastic news. It is designed by God himself. Because here's the deal. You cannot reconcile yourself to God. That's why this verse is the most profound verse in all of the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. It brings about mystery and wonder and gratitude. It's why we need to take a closer look at it this morning. So what we see in this verse, to give you a little bit of an outline, it's a single sentence, and there are two life-altering, hope-inspiring clauses in this particular sentence. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So there is point one. It is this. Christ made sin. Second clause, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sinners made righteous. Paul, in two clauses, one profound sentence, states it like this. Christ became sin, or was made sin, and sinners were then made righteous. And there's an exchange. Luther called it the great exchange in this particular text. And it's loaded. It's thick uh, with, with hope. So what we're getting to do, the privilege of this verse and unpacking it is we're going behind the scenes in the doctrine of reconciliation. We're going behind the scenes and seeing all the different components. Now, there's lots of heavy theological words that are born out of this singular verse. I'll mention them, but I won't harp on them because they just get, they get us all gummed up in our thinking and it's not the right place to go do a theological lecture this morning. But I'll mention them so you can write them off in your column so that you can be reminded when you stumble on these words as you're reading books, you'll know that, the, 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 that most of them come from this singular verse. This is such a fantastic verse. So let's look at the first clause as we understand the doctrine of reconciliation to God, that we're estranged as sinners by nature and by choice, how to become reconciled to God. We must know that first, Christ made Sin. Christ became sin for us. Remember I said every word matters? Look at it. He. He made him. He is God. God is the antecedent of the making of Christ. In other words, only God could design and execute a plan of reconciliation with himself. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. God has to be the one that originates the plan. He didn't have to save us. He elected to save us. He made the choice to save us. It was his plan. He designed it. He initiated this plan. He didn't spare everyone, but he did spare man. He didn't spare the angels, 2 Peter 2.14. He refused to spare the fallen angels and let them go. But he did spare mankind. He provides a way to be reconciled. So he did come after us in essence. He provided the plan and he pursues us. So God designs and executes a plan for us to reconcile with himself. That's fantastic news. Furthermore, it is unassisted. 
It doesn't require anything on our behalf. As a matter of fact, man is incapable of this reconciliation. So it originated in God, and then he's the architect of the whole plan. Peter said, if you remember Peter, in chapter 2, verse 33, he said this. It was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was always his plan to reconcile sinful man to a righteous God. And to once again regain that reconciliation. Now, a lot of people probably took the claim for killing Jesus. Certainly the soldiers might have said, well, we, we killed him. The religious leaders, they put him up for trial and, and threw him under the bus. And, and, and the Jews could probably claim, well, we, we killed him. But ultimately, if you step back far enough, it was God. God crushed his own son. He did it for you to reconcile you to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? He gave his only son. He crushed his only son so that we can be reconciled. So regardless of who says they killed Jesus, physically killed Jesus, it doesn't matter. God had a plan. He was the architect and the originator of that plan and said there's only one way to reconcile sinful man to a righteous God, and that would have to be a perfect sacrifice. So he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. Now, here's one of the big words. This is the most explicit word here and statement about the sinlessness of Christ. Here's the word you write in your column, and we won't spend a lot of time with it. It's called the impeccability of Christ. Impeccability. So if you have a margin over there, just write impeccability. When you stumble on it, this is why it's here. This is the word the theologians use. He made him who knew no sin. It's a reference to his perfection, his sinlessness, that he was impeccable. It had to be a sinless one to die for a sinful many. That was the plan. That would be the only thing that would work to reconcile us. There had to be a perfect mediator. There had to be a perfect substitute. That's why we call it a substitutionary atonement. Another big word, so put substitutionary. Somebody had to substitute for your sin. Somebody had to die. That was the requirement of the sin. Well, that certainly eliminates all of us and every other human because no other sinful man could die for another sinful man. As meritous as that would be, it just can't happen. And there are no second, perfect second atoms outside of Jesus, who is the God-man. There was nobody that could stand in your stead. There was nobody that could stand in your place. The perfect had to die for the imperfect. Jesus was the only one who was uniquely qualified to give his life in a substitution for your sin. He's the only one. It had to be perfect. And remember all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Remember, they had to be spotless. They had to be guiltless, holy, undefiled, an unblemished male, one-year-old lamb. And year after year after year, they would slaughter those lambs in atonement for the people's sin. And all of that slaughter and all that blood was there to one day picture what Christ would do on the cross because there had to be a perfect to die for the imperfect. So if you're an Old Testament believer, 
you are looking to the cross for forgiveness. Where we're on the other side of the cross, we look back to the cross. We look back and say, look what Christ did for my sin. They weren't looking in hope to the future. We look back. It all culminates in that single event that God sent his only son, his one and only son, and crushed him to be a substitute for your sin. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, exclusivity, no one can come to the Father except through me. The Son of God, Jesus, is 100% God, 100% man, and became the sacrificial lamb that was pictured all through the Old Testament. Could you imagine living in Old Testament times? I mean, we talk about having a quiet time. Your quiet time looks like you get up, you make a fresh pot of coffee, you sit in a nice lounge chair, you throw a throw blanket on, and you read your Bible. Very different in the Old Testament. You got up, you went out to the barn, you grabbed a lamb, you slit its throat, you hung the lamb, you drained the lamb. There was no quiet time like our quiet time. So just, if you want to get a Levitic, Leviticus quiet time, go to Leviticus chapter 1 and read what happens every day that they had to do. And look at what you're having to do. And I'll promise you, you'll start reading your Bible tomorrow because you're like, if I don't have to do all that mess, then, you know, because you go, you know, you go to Costco and get your hamburger, you know. Everything's all packaged in cellophane for you. There's no blood and you don't have marks all over your face and you haven't been gored and all. I mean, there's just craziness that, that had to happen there. So, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, was tapped to become the man, to become sin on our behalf. He was perfect. He had a human mother, but no earthly father. The sin nature was not passed on. He knew of sin. He never experienced sin. He was perfect sacrifice. He was a holy substitute. And he could pay for the sins of all who would believe. And so the text says, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to then be sacrificed on our behalf. Now, it doesn't mean Jesus doesn't know what sin is. Certainly he does. Certainly he would know the heinousness of sin. He prayed against it in his earthly days. He suffered for it. He forgave it. He exposed sin. But he never committed sin. That's the impeccability piece. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And there was only one that was ever perfect. He didn't have an experiential knowledge of sin like we have. Right? He didn't experience sin. He did not commit sin. It was impossible for him, because he was God, to sin. And it's also the universal opinion of all the players in the scripture that he was without sin. In all 33 years that he was on this planet, the last three being his ministry, the first 30 kind of obscurity, but the last three being his ministry, every stage along the way, people point out that he had done nothing wrong. John said, in him is no sin. Peter says, he committed no sin, nor was there any guile in his mouth. The author of Hebrews writes, he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. And then the Gospels constantly record 
most pronounced, the thieves on the cross, remember they're discussing what's going on and they can't figure out why is he between them? And the thief on the cross said, but this man has done nothing wrong. Over and over again, the universal opinion of the authors of scripture that Jesus was impeccable, sinless. He knew of sin. He never committed a sin, which made him the perfect sacrifice. To then, as the text says, he knew no sin. Why? So that he could become sin on our behalf. I want you to know that he didn't do that reluctantly. We know it was going to be extremely hard. The suffering, great. We know in the garden he prayed if this could change. And there was another plan that he'd go that route. But he prayed through all of that. First and foremost, he was not, and here's the important distinction, he was not made a sinner on the cross. He didn't become a sinner on the cross. He was made sin, but never sinful. Not for a moment. This is important. Not for a moment did he cease to be righteous. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for our sins. So during that three-hour period, the wrath of God was poured out on him. All of our sin was put on his righteous life. And that he would be a propitiation, another big word, a propitiation for that sin. He would imputate that sin. Forensically, God put all the sins of all who would ever believe on Jesus Christ. And he would carry that during those three hours. He experienced the full wrath of God, Matthew says in chapter 27, verse 46. So all the penalty, all the wrath... All the judgment he took on our behalf. I'm telling you, this is fantastic news. Because you can't reconcile yourself to God. Yet God architected it in such a way that he'd crush his own son, kill his own son, so that he could then take his righteous life and apply it to your sinful account. To the point where you, in by faith, trust Jesus Christ alone. You are declared righteous. Another big word, you are justified. You have applied to your sinfulness the righteousness of Christ. And you're forgiven. And you're reconciled to God forever and ever and ever. It's a forensic act. So God treated Jesus like you should be treated. He crushed his own son. He treated him like you should be treated. You deserve wrath. You deserve hell. You deserve all that. But God said, you know what I'm going to do? Because I love you so much, I'm going to put all of that on my own son. And you'll be reconciled to him. Jesus was not a victim. He chose self-humiliation. We looked at it at Christmas, right? Philippians 2. He willingly left heaven. He voluntarily left heaven and gave his life so that you might have life and forgiveness. He was our sin offering. So in the Old Testament, they would grab that little lamb and they would kill it as a constant reminder of and foretaste of what's coming. Jesus became your lamb. His blood was shed on your behalf. Only God, only God could lay the sins of the whole world on his own righteous son. 
And you have nothing to do with it. This is what's so gratifying, so mysterious, and so beautiful, and so amazing. It ought to blow your mind that this is the gospel, right? He, God, made Jesus, who was impeccable, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He killed his own son. This is why he can also say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You have to have a sacrifice. You have to have a substitution. Somebody has to pay for your sin. Because you're a sinner by nature, born into sin, and by choice. Doesn't mean you're as sinful as you could be. But you're a sinner by nature and by choice. So Jesus was fully conscious that God's wrath would be poured out on him on the cross. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying so hard. He's sweating drops of blood. He knew what was coming. And so he paid, another word for atoned, he atoned for our sin. He got what we deserve. He took our sentence of hell and put it on his own son. That's why we say Jesus bore our sins. Man, willingly, voluntarily, the just paid for the unjust. Jesus covered your sins on the cross. God treated him like a sinner. He never became a sinner. He treated him like a sinner, even though he had never sinned once in his life. He was Personally pure of sin, but forensically guilty for all the sins of the world. The whole lot, all of the sins of all who would ever believe, literally put upon him. So reconciliation happens through imputation of our sin on Christ's righteous life. Big words, I know. They're, they're tough ones. Write them in the column. But all of that is born out of this singular verse. The, char the Father charged Jesus' account for our sins. And our sinlessness was placed on him. And then we become righteous. That's insane, folks. That's mind-boggling. That is what ought to wake you up every single day. That thought ought to pulsate through your mind every single day. When you get up tomorrow morning... You need to be able to quote this verse. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's called a gift of God. That's called mercy upon mercy. That's called grace upon grace. And no matter how dark it gets and how, how hard it gets, you wake up tomorrow knowing you are forgiven and all the wrongs and all this stuff a hundred years from now won't matter. The only thing that will matter in your life is 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's it. That is the power of this verse. It's words of hope and reconciliation and freedom in Christ. And guess what? You can't do a doggone thing for it. I know we all want to try. I want to work for it. I want to give back. I want to do You can't. It's forensic. It happened. You can't even do anything about it. The land was provided by somebody else, and you're forgiven. And so the first clause is this. Christ made sin. 
Remember that second clause. Sinners made righteous. So that there's a clause, the purpose of, it's a henna clause, so that we, everybody that's repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ, we can then become the righteousness of God in him. That's why they call it alien righteousness. You ever heard the term alien righteousness? It's outside of us. It's foreign to us because we don't have any righteousness. It's alien. So we're given this alien righteousness. And this is why Luther said, this is the single most profound sentence because it's the exchange. We exchange our sin for Christ's righteousness. That's crazy for the purpose of making us righteous. So the purpose of God reconciling us to himself, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a transaction. It's a divine transaction. It's a forensic transaction because you can't do anything to earn it. There's no exchange of funds. There's no exchange of good works. There's no exchange of, of cattle or sheep or goats or whatever you want to try to exchange. It can't be done. It's, it's, it's forensic. It's outside of you. It's alien to you. Yet God calls you to repent in this great exchange. And he says, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you my son's righteousness and you're going to give me all your sin. Deal? That's the gospel, folks. That is the gospel. And it's such an exchange, such a transaction. I would have had a sweet exchange. One that you can never get over. One that you can never forget. This is the hope or the the positive side of brutal imputation. Brutal imputation is that God crushed his own son. The happy side of the cross, the back side of the cross is you are forgiven. You're in Christ. You're in the family. So that when God looks at your sin and when you stand before God, one day you will all stand before God by yourself. No moms, dads, nobody. All by yourself. And he'll say, why should I let you into my heaven? You're going to answer one question. Why should I let you into my heaven? And the only thing, the only right response, the only biblical response, the only proper response is Christ then steps forward and says, because they embrace my forgiveness and my righteousness is applied to their account. They're free. And God says, welcome to the family of God. Welcome to heaven. That's the only thing that's going to matter. One question. You, better, you don't get this question right, you're, you're damned to hell. That's how, this is a, this is a serious verse. You cannot play and trifle with this verse because this is the gospel. God will credit Christ's righteousness to your sinful count. We are then made righteous. Now, here's your last big word, justification. You've been justified. It's what we call forensic justification. It's outside of us. It's alien righteousness imputated to us by Christ's brutal shedding of his blood on the cross. Our sin is reckoned to him, his righteousness reckoned to us. And then, from that point on, you are seen in him. You are in Christ. And you live from that position of justification. You don't live for it. You don't work for it. You live from it. It's a forensic, declared position. John MacArthur said it best. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had personally committed every sin 
ever committed by every person who would ever believe. That's what he did on the cross. And then we're granted to us undeserved righteousness, status, real status, status before God. When we exercise faith and repentance and turn our lives over to him, his shed blood washes our sinful stains away. And not only that, we're going to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper in a minute. The physical act of the Lord's Supper is a reflection or an expression of 521. Now, one footnote. We're not made righteous in the sense that we are never touched by sin in this life. You see, you're still in this flesh. You're still incarcerated in this body. You're still going to sin. So between justification and glorification, when you're ultimately perfect, right? So you have justification, glorification, in the middle, however many days God gives you, that's called sanctification. And that's where you're trying to sync up your justification with your glorification. And you'll do it imperfectly, and that's why it's progressive, and it's grace-induced. But you should be, from the point of justification to glorification, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Day after day, month after month, few setbacks, two steps forward, one back, but hopefully never two forward, ten back, but you're always doing something. You're always progressing. And that's why Paul says, hey, same guy that wrote this verse, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling every day. There's the perseverance of the saints. You continue to work at it. And so we look at the progression of your life, not the perfection. You'll never be perfection. Because if you were perfect in this life, heaven won't be so sweet, right? Every year that goes by, every time we turn the calendar, and we go to 2019, we ought to look back and go, whoo, dog, one year closer to heaven. You know, glad 2017's done. Here comes 2018, right? And the sweetness of heaven ought to become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter as you progress through this life. So, justification, being declared righteous and forgiven, doesn't eliminate your need for sanctification and practically confessing sin and working out your salvation. So day by day... That which is judicially true of you, you have been forgiven. You have to constantly rely upon and work out in your sanctification. And it's gradual and progressive until one day the fight is over. The tears will be gone. The brokenness of this world will diminish. And you will be glorified when the two, here's what heaven is. It's when your justification Sinks up with your glorification, and you are made righteous, totally, perfectly clean, altogether. That's what we long for. That's why we should long for another world. That's like in Hebrews 11, they said, there's always a group of people who, who are longing for a better city. You know, as fantastic as Bardstown is, and as quaint as Bardstown is, it is a ghetto compared to heaven. Straight up ghetto. You're in the hood. If you're living in this, this, this time and this planet, right? Th that's what the problem is. But we get so, that's why we are constantly working on our sanctification, kind of getting that heavenly mindedness into us. Because we get so attached down here. We start building up stuff down here. We start thinking, this is it. Oh, it's not. You're here, what, 70, 80 years? Terrible, you're gone. 
You know, all these wrongs, all the craziness, all the things you can't understand in this life, 100 years from now, it won't even matter at the great white throne judgment. It won't even, you'll be like, who cares? We're to live in the reality, though, of our justification. We are. So, presently, if you've exercised faith and repentance, made Christ Lord of your life, you should strive by the Spirit's influence to live a righteous life. You're not going to do it perfectly. I'm being straight up with you. I don't, and you won't. But you should strive to live righteously. And second, not only are you justified, you now have a ministry. You think, Uncle Dan, I don't want to be in the ministry. Oh, you're in the ministry. Every one of you are. That's the deal. Look at verse 20. Go a little north. One verse. Told you I wouldn't go far. I wouldn't stray. This is touching that verse, so it's not straying. Paul writes, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. Oh, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does he mean by that? That means he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You have a ministry of reconciliation, every single one of you. That's your calling. That's why you're here. And you know what? We were talking with some folks this week, Troy and I. That's one of the distinctives of this church. We always want to be about the ministry of reconciliation. We love seeing unbelievers become believers. We love to see people go from unjustified and alienated to God, from God, to reconciled to God and, and understand their justification, understand the cross and the power of the cross. That is why we are here. So it's not just me doing reconciliation or the elders doing the reconciliation. It's all of us. We have a ministry. So someone says, what do you do for a living? You tell them, I have a ministry of reconciliation. And I tell my neighbors who aren't reconciled to God how to become reconciled to God. Of course, that's their choice. They've got to make that choice. But that's what we do. So we're, we're actively engaged in announcing an amnesty, a reconciliation with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords so that the wrath of God will not fall upon them. That's what we do. You're an ambassador. That's your title. Not your profession. Right? So someone asks you, you say, well, I'm, I, 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 I'm a coach. No, you're an ambassador that happens to be coaching on the side that pays the bills. But in the meantime, you're an ambassador, right? That's what we do. So not only are we forensically forgiven and reconciled to God, then he says, guess what? You're on the team. You get to call other people to reconciliation. And I can assure you, there is no greater ministry. There is none. To watch somebody go from death to life, for the light to turn on, and to watch their life change and their marriage change. And some of you have experienced that even this year. So that, there is no comparison. Because that's the most important decision. That determines your eternal life. Not just this physical one, but your eternity is in play. We are called to announce to everyone that God has made a way to be forgiven and reconciled to himself. And it's not through yourself. It's not through anything you can do. 
So we have a ministry of reconciliation. There's only one way we can be reconciled to God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Exclusivity. There is only one way. There are no Baptists in heaven. There are no non-doms in heaven. There are no Methodists in heaven. There are no Catholics in heaven. Only Christians go to heaven. Only people who are reconciled to God. So religion is not in play. It's relationship, right? It's relationship. And there's only one relationship that matters, and that's your relationship with Christ. Would you like Christ? Would you like Christ's righteousness credited to your account? You can have that. You can be forgiven. Right? You can be forgiven. How do you deal with the plague of sin? Ten million times worse than the black plague. How do you do that? By trusting Christ alone. He was made sin for you. You can trust Him by faith. You'll be then seen in Him. And you'll be granted His righteousness applied to your sinful count. You'll be forgiven. And I can promise you, as messy as this life gets, you want to wake up tomorrow morning knowing you're forgiven. Because it'll put joy in your step. It'll give you purpose. It'll, it'll tell you why you're here because now you have a ministry of reconciliation. You've been flirting with ministry and thinking, what can I do around the church? How can I serve? You have a ministry. It may, not, it may be here on Sunday morning doing X, Y, and Z, but I can tell you, if you start seeing your job like a ministry, it'll change your disposition at your job. If you start seeing your job as a mission field, it'll change everything going on, right? And so Paul says, we beg, verse 20, on behalf of Christ. I would beg you this morning, as your shepherd this morning, if you have never been reconciled to God, I beg you. Today is the day you get reconciled with God. It is that, that clear, that simple Stop messing around. Today is the day. Tomorrow's the devil's day. He'd love for you to procrastinate that decision. Today is God's day. Hebrews 4.12 says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. I plead with you. Be reconciled to God if you're not. If you truly are reconciled and you're rejoicing and you're grateful and your mind is boggled because of this singular verse today, remember this. Add to that, you are now a minister of reconciliation. That's what you do. That's what we're called to do. And that's what is the sweet spot in this church. That's what's so attractional to this church because we care about sinners because we've all been there. And we've been forgiven. Now we're going to tell other people. It's like one beggar telling another beggar, where's the bread? That's what we do. And that's what makes this place so, so very special. Now, on top of that, here's the cherry. We get to celebrate the Lord's table together this morning. And it's the visual expression of verse 21. So let's stand together. They're going to get the elements ready. Troy's going to get the music ready. I'm going to read this in conclusion. And then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11 like we always do. And then we're going to celebrate. And I hope celebrate it just a little sweeter. Just a little sweeter because of a single verse. Paul says, he, 
made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray and then we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11. Father, I pray that every single person here this morning would have a, a desire to be reconciled to you and would understand the plague of sin. By nature and by choice, we need to be forgiven. We no longer need to be enemies. We need to be reconciled to you. No longer estranged, but in closeness to you. In Christ, forgiven, can boldly stand before God who knows you've been forgiven. No matter what happens to our life, whether it's shortened or long, we can stand one day before you forgiven by Christ's righteousness alone. God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. You would bring about gratitude. It would blossom. And it would really serve us every single day this week. It would be our first thought that we've been reconciled to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.